The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Genesis chapter 42, and we're at a point right now, you've kind of seen it depicted there, but, but what you didn't see there is that Joseph's emotions are starting to slowly get the best of him because he is starting to see the hand of God working on these brothers. For the first chapters from 37 to 40, we saw God's amazing work on Joseph. And Joseph was characterized by a man who had fellowship with God. His whole life was built on the reality of serving God in everything he did. And that's why Joseph was able to maintain such a very clear and concise faith in God, even through the tremendous difficulties he went through from being sold by his brothers into slavery, from being a slave, doing the best, and then being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison, then forgotten in prison. Yet he maintained faith in what God was doing and that in the end, God would be glorified. On the other hand, we have the brothers who God meant nothing to them. They lived for themselves. Everything they did was for their own pleasure and desire, but now through the circumstances God is creating, he's beginning to wear them down. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, the amazing thing of this story, if not the most amazing, is to realize that God loved those brothers as much as he did Joseph. And he is creating circumstances to draw these men to himself. So in Genesis 42, beginning in verse 24, Joseph has just had to turn away because his heart is beginning to soften to these men. And it says, Then he turned away from them, and he wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before his eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. You see, Joseph has a deep desire to reward hatred with kindness. Joseph is in a position to just lay the wood to these brothers. And I wonder how many of us, in, with being faced with a very similar situation, with someone who has wronged us as badly as these brothers, remember when they threw him in the pit, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to murder him. But then when that caravan came through on their way to Egypt, they got the idea to sell them and make some money off them. And here they are, bowed before Joseph, and he treats them with love and kindness, despite what they've done. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that how Christ treats every one of us? Verse 26, then they looked, they they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us. <clears throat> when they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, 
They told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take the grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your, li- your, your son, or little did they, excuse me, bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when, they, and when they saw their father, their bundles of money, they were afraid. Now, it's interesting to just consider this whole situation. Because as I said, in the first part of verse 24, Joseph began to break down. He began to recognize that God was working in these men. He began to recognize that their hearts were starting to be sensitive and see the things that God was doing. He was was weeping, and his heart was beginning to break. But it was not time for him to reveal himself yet. In the second half of the verse, we are told that the the, the situation is entirely different because when Joseph comes back, he puts on that stiff demeanor again. And he took Simon from them and bound them right before their eyes. The significance of this combination of ideas is that the brothers were able to see only one part of this man, a very rough, a very hard and callous man. The time, as I said, was not yet for Joseph to reveal himself. So what the brothers see in this man is someone who is harsh, vindictive, and unfeeling. Interestingly, the exact characteristics of the brothers. Little did they know that beneath these rough ways intended for their good, there was a heart filled with the most compassionate love for them. And isn't that often the way it is with us and Jesus? Like a father or mother may discipline their child, the child only sees the bad, the, the, the penalties. But there's the love and the compassion behind the parent trying to restore and bring them back into a right relationship. And this is exactly what God is doing through Joseph. Through this stern treatment, he is beginning to get their attention and draw them into a realization that there's something far more important here than they're simply getting what they want. So let's notice, first of all, that God creates circumstances. At this period in the history, the capital of Egypt was Memphis, and it was about 10 miles south of where current Cairo is today. And considering where Jacob lived in Hebrew or Hebron, the distance between the two cities was about 250 miles. So you're looking at about a three-week journey through rough terrain in the wilderness. It would be a difficult travel for anyone, but particularly the brothers carrying all the grain and trying to get back. On the one hand, they would have relief. They thought they were in danger of dying, but now they're free heading back to home. But on the other hand, 
they were returning without Simeon. And how on earth were they going to explain this to their father? In addition, they had been buffeted by God to the point at which they had actually confessed to each other their sin about Joseph by selling him into slavery. The brothers must have been relieved yet anxious, grateful yet troubled. They did not need another shock. They didn't need something else to go wrong, but that's exactly what happened through God's direction as he continues to soften their hearts and their consciences. Before these men started home, the story tells us that Joseph had all the money returned to them in their sacks. The use of these provisions that, got, that uh, Joseph had given them, the extra provisions, would help them to get way down the road before they actually went into the regular sacks and discovered the money. But as they looked in their sacks, there was the money that they had used to pay for their grain. Imagine their shock. Imagine the utter fear that gripped them. In fact, verse 28 says, <clears throat> he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they trembled to, to one another saying, and get this, what is this that God has done to us? Do you see how conviction works? Now they're beginning to relate everything to God. Now, if you look at the, the part where they said their hearts failed them, according to the pulpit commentary, <coughs> the, the literal Hebrew says their hearts literally failed them. In other words, their heart leapt up into their throat. Have you ever been scared or so shocked that you felt like your heart just jumped into your throat? That's the way these men were. What was going to happen? Was he going to send the army after him? Did he think they stole this money? They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know that Joseph put it back in there. All they know is that they were treated roughly by this man, and now they've left, and all their money is back in their sacks. Notice, though, immediately that the brothers credited this misfortune to God. They're becoming more conscious of God as the story unravels. Have you ever shouted, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why did you let this happen? Have you ever said that? Have you ever in fear and anger put it all on God as if he's bullying you? These brothers never addressed anything to God until now. And under extreme conviction, everything that they see, they see as God beginning to intervene. The land of God or the hand of God is tightening around them. So when you consider their question, what is this that God has done to us? I want to ask two questions regarding that. Number one, what do the brothers mean by the question? What has God done to us? Well, one might think that in their sinfulness, <clears throat> they're just angry about God putting them on the firing line or causing grief to them, trying to assign blame to him. But for the first time, they are acknowledging that God is in control of their circumstances. What they mean is, God has done this. God is not forgetful of our sins. As we thought that we would get away with it, God has seen it. God remembers it. God is intervening powerfully in our lives. And do you know why 
we hate to admit that God is controlling our circumstances because most of the time it means I've got to change. And we don't like to change, especially if we feel like we're in control. These brothers are starting to realize for the very first time that a power greater than them is starting to intervene in their lives, and they're scared. The second question we could ask, what does the brother's statement concerning God signify? Well, very simply, the answer is that they were coming to grips with the true God at last. In other words, <clears throat> their statement does not only mean that they were recognizing that God was doing something in them, but they're also realizing that God himself is personally involving himself in their lives. Now, I'm sure that these men had uttered the name of God all through their lives. I mean, after all, they were the son of Jacob. He was the God who brought Abraham, their great-grandfather, out of Ur. They knew about God, but they never knew God. They never had a relationship with God. And you see, as we contrast Joseph with the brothers, Joseph had a relationship with God. Whenever things got tough, whenever things got to be a struggle, whenever the, it seemed like the world was caving in, he could go to his heavenly father knowing that he was in his hands and he could trust him. The brothers, on the other hand, lived taking all their circumstances into their own hands. They lived their lives the way they wanted as if they were the only ones there and they made decisions based on themselves. <coughs> now, God is pressing them into a close relationship. God was not real to them. They had been living their lives as if God didn't exist for them personally. So when they say, what is this that God has done to us? They're acknowledging the bearing of the true God on their lives for the very first time. I wonder this morning if you have come to the point which God is really becoming real to you, where you are starting to see his hand in your life. Perhaps you have used his name carelessly. Maybe you've said, oh my God, or, or when something happens, or you've said, God bless you, not really considering what you're saying. These uses do not mean that you know God. On the contrary, they're probably evidences that you don't. God is the God who created the heavens and the earth, and he created you and to whom you are accountable for every thought, word, deed, or action. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, who led these fathers out of a corrupt environment and led them into a new path of righteousness with him. He's the God who required righteousness, righteous conduct from the people of Israel, and requires no less from you and I. He is the one who sent Jesus for such sinful, ridden people as us. He is the one who leads us and guides us and draws us into a close relationship with him that he might build into our lives his leading and his guiding. And that's one of the great blessings that you and I have today as opposed to the Old Testament because when we come to Christ and we recognize that his death on the cross paid for our sins and we trust him with our lives, his Holy Spirit takes up residence within us to guide us into all truth. And we can rely on that truth to lead us every step of the way. He is the God who required righteousness from all his people. And in fact, 
He's the God who is working in you right now through every circumstance of your life, whether you see it or don't. So how do you know? How do you know that he is working and leaning on you? Well, if you've never had a relationship with Christ, I can tell you the one way you can know for sure is when you become conscious of your sin and are troubled by it. I notice in this story that the brothers first confessed their sin and they had a genuine awareness about God at the same time. And that's the way God works in all our lives. You cannot approach the true God without being aware of your sin and you cannot find salvation without confessing it before him. I believe this is why the process has taken so long in the brothers is because God wants them to see his hand in all these circumstances. I get very concerned when someone says, well, you can get saved just by uttering a quick prayer and going about your life. And that's dangerous. Because a true converted life changes. Our relationship with God changes. The Bible says old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. They had to think through and witness God working all through these circumstances. And this is why I, I'm suspect of these quick salvation things, you know, and letting people go on their way. Salvation is not to be taken lightly because it leads to a whole change of life. This is going to culminate <clears throat> in the near future when they realize that the one they persecuted, the one they were going to murder, the one that they sold into slavery, the one they hated, now stands in judgment of them. And isn't that our relationship with Christ? Nobody here would say, I hate Jesus. But what does your life say? Is your life surrendered to Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? You see, these brothers had to come to the place to understand that they were going to receive immense mercy because Joseph could have just snapped his fingers and they would all have been killed. And they deserved death for what they did. But Joseph is going to show mercy and grace and kindness. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is offering to every one of us today. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, you have a heavenly Father who is offering salvation, offering that free gift to lead you into perfect righteousness. The other thing that's fascinating here is that God's grace is being showed through Joseph's kindness. And this is interesting because thus far in the story, the interventions of God in these Joseph's brothers' lives has been rough. It's had a rough edge to it. They have issued from grace since they have been intended to be good for their brothers. But still, they have not been kind things. We would willingly choose, would willing would not choose ourselves the pinch of material want or harsh treatment. None of us would want to be treated harshly. But here, for the first time, in the case of the money being returned to the brothers' sacks, 
we have something that is purely gracious. Joseph simply wants to give their money back. So far, we can tell he had no ulterior motive. Unlike the situation we'll see in chapter 44 when he puts the cup into Benjamin's sack and then sends the soldiers after them, here there's no ulterior motive. He simply, out of his love and kindness, is giving them their money back to take back to their father. In fact, he he never even mentions the money again, and even his steward assures them that he received the payment. So this is strictly an act of kindness and grace. Have you ever been offered grace in the midst of trial? Has God ever been dealing with you, but deals with you in love and compassion, with healing, with love? This is how the story is switching now. But how difficult is it for unbelievers to fathom grace? Because they know their true heart. One of the real struggles for people coming to Christ is they think, I'm too bad. Surely God can't love me. Look what I've done in my life. Look who I am. Look at the problems I've been. How could God ever love me? Yet that's exactly what God's doing to Joseph's brothers. Hateful murderers, and he's going to offer them salvation through grace. There's not a person in this room that it can, be, can escape the love of God. There is no sin too vile. There is nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of God. We know those great passages that tell us that no matter what we do, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And when he is after you, friends, you're going to come because his grace is far greater than our sin. But it's interesting, some of this plays out. In Leviticus chapter 26, there's a verse that speaks of this which really testifies how the wicked are. Leviticus 26, 36. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. And they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteousness are bold as lions. And what we have in Genesis 42 is an ultimate expression of this principle. God was doing good to these brothers in returning their money. But because they were not yet right in right relationship with him, they feared even his goodness and turned to each other trembling in fear. You see, they were waiting for the next shoe to drop. They didn't know grace. They didn't know divine grace. They expected, as a sinful heart would, that the other shoe was about to drop. And even with the expression of kindness and love and mercy, they don't know how to handle it. God was leading by His gracious acts as well as by other circumstances. And this is a pure case of Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, we don't always come to Christ because things are bad. 
Sometimes when we experience his grace in a difficult situation, that's designed to draw us to the one who gives grace. He is a loving God. He knows we're sinners. He knows we have a sin nature. He knows left alone to ourselves, we'd never choose good. But because he's rich in mercy, he offers grace. And this is exactly what he's doing to the brothers. How is God's kindness leading? Well, the fact that the money was returned in their sacks led to the nine brothers to the fullest and most open dealings with their father to date. They never mentioned their sin against Joseph yet, but they were honest with Jacob. They did not hide the problem that they had gotten themselves into regarding Simeon and Benjamin. And so they said to their father in verse 33, then the, men, the, the, then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brothers to you and you shall trade in the land. The brothers were not quite honest yet but they were getting there. They were beginning to learn what it was like to live by truth and not lies, by honesty rather than deceit. And they began to open up in an honest way. The second point at which we will see progress coming is at the end of the chapter. The brothers explained that they would not be able to go back to Egypt without Benjamin, but, but Jacob Jacob, he, he protested. He was not about to lose his son Benjamin like he had Joseph. But Reuben, Reuben, who had earlier dishonored his father by sleeping with his father's concubine, pledged his own sons to Jacob. Look what he says in verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. You see the change that's coming in the heart? Earlier, he had served himself. No one else's happiness, not even his father's, would have gotten in the way of what he wanted to do. But now he's willing to put his own family on the line for the family. Slowly but surely, the change is starting to happen in these brothers' lives. Slowly but surely, they're beginning to understand we're not going to get away from God. He is beginning to turn up the pressure. And they may be looking at it as anger and frustration, but what they're going to see by the time we're done is what Joseph said to them when he confronted them in chapter 50. Jacob had died. The brothers thought, now Joseph's going to rain havoc on him. But Joseph said those words that we've mentioned before. He said to the brothers, he said, no, look, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And what these brothers are going to realize that in their vile sinfulness, there is a God who loves them beyond that sin. There is a God who wants to draw them to him and free them for all eternity.
That is the amazing story that we have. What is God doing in your heart this morning? Is God working on you? Do circumstances seem like they're closing in? Are you experiencing harsh treatment or difficult situations? Do you wonder why? Or is God wooing you with grace and mercy, offering the ultimate of salvation? It's because God is so loving and so kind that he will employ whatever it takes to draw you to himself so that you can experience immense fullness and love and mercy. This repentance also leads to a life far more abundant. You recall Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. How is your life this morning? Is it abundant? I'm not asking, is it trouble-free? We will never be trouble-free this side of glory. That's part of living in a sinful world with a sin nature. But is your life abundant? Do you have the Lord as your Savior? Do you have the Spirit of God guiding you into all truth? Do you know the Word of God and understand that He has a plan for your life that He set off before the foundation of the world? Do you understand that in the difficult circumstances right now, God is using them for good if you will yield to what he's doing? It's amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. But what does that say about the rest of us? I know he never met me. God loves you and he's offering you a life of forgiveness and a life that will culminate when you leave to be with him for eternity. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. That's the offer this morning that he gives to each one of us. You know, as we had that dedication at the beginning and saw that little boy, that bundle of joy that's brought so much excitement to that family, he will grow up with that influence. As that little child grows and develops and begins to hear and understand and watch mom and dad, he'll watch the influences that God has provided him. And each one of us here this morning have that influence from God the Spirit to lead us into all truth. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, I, I pray that you'd come and talk to us that we might show you the way that God has designed. But if you're here and you're a Christian and you know maybe your life hasn't been characterized by the abundance that the Scripture talks about, it's never too late to just give it over to Him. In the next few weeks, we're going to see these brothers come to that amazing culmination when their life explodes with grace. And I pray that you will find that same purpose, that same meaning, and that same freedom that God is offering you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this amazing story. We thank you for the love that you have for these brothers. I'm always amazed in my humanness that you could love these wretched, vile brothers. But then I remember you loved me. 
and you've loved all who have come to you. I pray this morning that your will will be done. I pray this morning that your grace would shine on the hearts of all here today. And I pray, Lord, that today may be a day of salvation for some, at least a day of freedom for Christians who realize that doing life their own way is just leading to a life of struggle and despair. Help us to cast all our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. And may you be glorified today in Christ's name. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.